All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are about to embark upon our sixth teaching in a series that I've been calling Build an Ark. And the whole foundation of this series, and you can be turning to Psalm 112 as I'm giving you these introductory thoughts, Psalm 112 as our master text this morning. And the whole basis of this series is that there are principles in the Bible and promises in the Bible related to your protection. So we started out studying Psalm 91, and there's a lot of wonderful promises in Psalm 91 related to your protection and mine in this dangerous world. And we talked about several other principles that will help us along those lines. The declaration of God's word from your mouth. We talked about um, uh, building an ark of protection where our health is concerned. And there's health principles in the Bible. And also building an ark of protection where our finances are concerned. And we spent some time on this one. Because there's so many religious ideas out there. Sacred cows that we've been kicking over these last couple of weeks. And we're going to do some more of that again today and uh, talk more about building an ark of protection where your finances are concerned. So if you have found Psalm 112, would you stand up with me and let's read that? We'll honor the reading of God's word as we stand. And we're going to read this entire chapter. It's only 10 verses. So here we go. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. What a great chapter, a great promise. Well, I'm going to do something just a little bit different as we embark upon this teaching this morning. I'm going to begin by giving you a testimony. And I'm giving you a, a few testimonies throughout the course of uh, this series, especially uh, the financial part of it. But I want to just give you another testimony of God's faithfulness. Um, I told you a little bit already about how, even though I didn't do very well in school, um, and actually well into my 20s, uh, I wasn't doing very well financially at all. And then uh, I, I got serious about serving the Lord. And, and the, from the very beginning, God convicted me deeply about honoring him with my money. And as I did that, I began to grow financially. And things were great for 13 years in my career. I mean, it was just a, a kind of an upward trajectory of financial blessing and financial gain for about 13 or so years. Um, and then Donna and I built the house in 2006 that we're still living in now. Now, during that process, um, we were still tithing and still giving, but because we did a lot of sweat equity on the home and lot, put a lot of work into it ourselves, 
um, my, my focus on just really tithing and giving with purpose. I mean, just really focusing on just honoring the Lord with it. It became more rote. It became more routine because I was just so overwhelmed with my work schedule and plus going home at night and then working for hours with a sweat equity on our home. So I, I laid the hardwood floor, a thousand square feet of hardwood floor in our home. I laid it myself. I did the, the finish on the stair banister. Um, we did most of the painting in our home. So uh, a lot of that sweat equity we did ourselves, it took a long time and a lot of focus. Well, during that time, and I can't explain it other than the fact that we just kind of lost that focus in giving purposefully. We were still giving, but we weren't really focusing on honoring and worshiping the Lord with it. We were just kind of doing it out of rote, out of routine. You know, it became a religious thing during that time because we were so busy. Well, it was very interesting that in 2006, for the first time in my then 13-year career, I took a big financial hit in um, my earnings in my career. And it was pretty bad. I got kind of concerned. We were here, we were were building this beautiful new house, and then all of a sudden, our income takes a big hit. And I'm like looking at the books going, wow, you know, I'm not sure about this. Things are going to be a little bit tight. So we decided to fight fire with fire after, uh, you know, dealing with this situation for quite a number of weeks and into months, I said, you know what, enough is enough. We're going to get refocused on uh, honoring the Lord with our wealth and with the first fruits of all of our income. And we're going to take it a step further. We're going to fight fire with fire. And even though my, my income has taken a financial hit, we kept our tithing the same. And at the same time, we were supporting a, a young missionary couple in Mexico. And uh, they were actually from here, but they were down in Oaxaca, Mexico, um, doing some missionary work there. And so we were giving to them every month. And then I called the husband of that young missionary couple, and I told him what was going on with our finances. And I think that he was bracing himself on the other line um, because he thought I was going to tell him that we're going to have to reduce the amount of money that we're contributing to your ministry every month. But then I ended by saying this, the... Last several months have been difficult financially, so then you're getting a raise. He went, what? That just didn't compute with him. I said, we're giving you a raise. We are going to give X amount of money over and above what we've been contributing for you for these last couple of years or however long it was we were giving to them. And he couldn't believe it. He was blown away by that. Because typically what people say is when they hit a financial slump is, oh, sorry, we're going to have to decrease the amount of money that we're giving to you. But we gave him a raise. Why? Because we're fighting fire with fire. Yeah. Now, the outcome of that is that nothing happened immediately. But in a few weeks, my income increased again to what it was prior to the dip. And then we closed out the remainder of 2006 uh, actually above where we were slightly. And then 2007 was a banner year. We had a massive increase in our finances in 2007. So if anybody says to me that God doesn't care about money and you know, God doesn't care about your financial advancement, you came too late to tell me. You came too late to tell me. Because I've experienced this. I've practiced these principles, and I've experienced this personally. And, of course, it's in the Bible as well. So I'm going to 
give you some more of those principles today. Um, and again, this is my third teaching in a row on this. So why am I taking so much time with this subject of finances and building an arc of protection where our finances are concerned? Well, number one, first of all, as I've said already in a previous teaching, there's a lot of financial experts out there and prophets of God that are predicting a financial holocaust coming upon this nation. So we need to know how to protect our financial estates and do it God's way. So that's the first thing. Um, and also, you know, some of you, newer ones in the congregation, have never heard me teach on this before prior to two weeks ago, uh, weeks ago when I started this series. And others of you that have been around for a while and have heard me teach on this, you need to be reminded because repetition is the mother of learning. Repetition is the mother of learning. Yes. Repetition is the mother of learning. <laughs> the more you hear it, the more it sinks in. My kids growing up, they would always complain, Dad, why do you repeat yourself so often? That's why. Repetition is the mother of learning. Okay? So we need to be exposed to the same truth multiple times so that it sinks in and we begin to remember it and practice it. And also, Romans 10, 17 says that faith cometh by hearing, present tense, and hearing by the word of God. Not just having heard once or twice before, but hearing in the present tense. So that's why I'm spending some time on this, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you see, walking by faith, ladies and gentlemen, means having confidence in something promised that you don't see in the physical realm yet. Let me say that again. Walking by faith, walking in faith, means having confidence in a promise of God that you don't yet see in the physical realm yet. But like Abraham, when he was promised a son and he wavered not through unbelief, you know, we need to be the same way regarding our finances because, folks, people have a lot of anxiety about their money. Do you know that? So we need to be familiar with the promises of God, declare them over ourselves, like I talked about a couple of teachings ago, to like, I think maybe three or four teachings ago in this series, declare the word of God over ourselves, practice the principles, of course, and then waver not through unbelief that God will come through for you in due time. Now, I'll tell you what's at stake here regarding faith. This is kind of my introductory thoughts here still. I'll tell you what's at stake here regarding faith. And this is a very, very poignant and sobering statement from James chapter 1, which says that... Those who waver and doubt should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, wow, you don't hear that preached a lot, but that's in the Bible. Go read James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. That he who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed here and there, right? And such a man should not expect to receive anything anything from God. We need to have confidence in the promises of God, lay hold of them by faith, and waver not through unbelief. So we need to not just practice the principles, as important as that is. We, of course, need to practice the biblical principles, but also bolster our faith, and that's why I'm taking some time on this. So is that okay? Now, by the way, as I start to dive into uh, the bulk of my material this morning, I want to correct something that I said last week because I want to be exact. I said last week that if you have a household income 
of about $60,000 per year, you are in the uh, top 3% of the world's richest people. I was just slightly off on those numbers. I thought I was remembering correctly, but I went and looked it up and I was slightly off. So let me, let me give you the exact numbers. Here we go. This is at the, my source here is at the bottom, howrichami.givingwhatwecan.org. Okay, so that's my source. They did the research. So I'm trusting them that this is accurate. But look at these numbers. If you have a household income of $62,000, you are in the richest 7.6% of the global population. That means out of, what is it, 7, almost 8 billion people on the planet, there's only a little over 7% of the world's population that's richer than you are. That gives you some perspective, doesn't it? And your income at $62,000 per year, and by the way, look at that little, that little subheading, under household income of $62,000, that's if there's two adults and two children. So four people in the house with $62,000. If you make $62,000 with two adults and two children, your income is more than eight times the global median. Eight times. So this is why I get a little bit befuddled and perplexed about people who live in this country enjoying the kind of opulence that we do, saying God doesn't care about your money, God doesn't care about that sort of thing. Well, you're living in prosperity for Pete's sake. Okay, let's go on with this. So if you were to donate 10% of your income, here's what it would look like. You would have a household income of then $55,800 and would make uh, $6,200 in donations, and that would put you in the richest 9% of the global population, your income would be more than 7.3 times the global median if you make $62,000 a year with four people in the house and you tithe 10% of your income. You'd still be in the top 9% of the world's richest people. So even if you tithe, you're richer than most of the world. But when you tithe and you give to the poor, then the blessing and favor of God resides upon you. Listen, I want to make this more clear right now than how it's probably preached a lot out there, if this is even preached at all. And it's this, that generosity, ladies and gentlemen, is not a suggestion. It's a commandment. Okay? It's a basic expectation of the Christ follower, just like prayer, witnessing, reading your Bible. Giving, generosity, is a basic expectation of the Christ follower. But to give you even more perspective on this, um, let's compare our lifestyles here in the West to the lifestyles of most other people in other nations. And I want to show you a couple of pictures right now, the one on the top being uh, people, you know, a, a Western couple around the table, family of four, enjoying a, a wonderful, peaceful meal. And those kids uh, on, in that bottom picture in the street, eating discarded leftovers that are in the street, and that's what they're eating. Right off the street. I mean, this goes on all the time, folks, and this is going on right now. And we don't see a lot of this because we're insulated from it because there's not a lot of that sort of thing that goes on in this nation. I personally think that everyone needs to take a mission trip at some point in their lives 
because that'll give you perspective on life. I mean, real perspective on life. You can't possibly have a true perspective on life until you've seen it from the other side of the tracks, so to speak. See, most of us that were born here in the West um, have been born into so much privilege, even those of us who had very rough upbringings. Because as I told you last week, I had a very rough upbringing. I, we were poor by American standards. My mother was on food stamps. But you know what? I never remember missing a meal. I never remember going to bed hungry. We had hand-me-down clothes that weren't all that great, but we lived in a, a home that was at least somewhat temperature-controlled. We had a little, those little baseboard heaters uh, that at least kept us a little bit warm in the winter. We didn't have any air conditioning. But I don't remember growing up like terribly un- uncomfortable. I mean, even the way that I grew up and some of you did, we have no idea what it's like to grow up like some of the world does. When I went to Haiti back many years ago and I saw what, what it looks like in Haiti, I was blown away. Like blown away by what I saw in Haiti. So let me give you some numbers here. So the average American household, again, makes $62,000. An annual salary of $62,000 breaks down to $5,166 per month. That matches the monthly combined salaries of 232 doctors in Pakistan. It would take the average laborer in Indonesia 69 years to make the same annual amount. Are you feeling a little richer this morning? All right. So again, I wanted to give you that perspective because when we start talking about money, people start getting very uncomfortable because like, this is my money and, you know, this is my stuff. And that's why the Bible is very, very serious about generosity because it breaks that spirit of mammon like we've talked about the last couple of weeks. And I think this perspective helps us to understand that, yeah, you know what? We do have extra money to give. We are obligated to care for the poor. I'm going to get into more of that here in a bit. But I want to give you, as we proceed here, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of these um, concepts a little bit more deeply. But I want to give you, as we do so, three wrong mindsets about money. Three wrong mindsets about money. And the first one is this. I am not worthy of God's blessings. That's the first wrong mindset. Well, let's get one thing straight, brothers and sisters. Apart from Christ, you and I aren't worthy. But the good news of the gospel is that it's not about your or my level of worthiness anyway. It's about Jesus' righteousness that passes on to those who trust him. Praise God. That's the gospel. So let me read you out of Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, what uh, it says about that. When you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your trespasses, having canceled the debt ascribed to us in the decrees that stood against us. Man, hallelujah. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Hallelujah. So, according to that passage that we just read, in verse 14, what did God do through Jesus with your legal indebtedness? He canceled it. He canceled it. It's like you standing before a judge having just been convicted of some pretty serious things, extortion, 
armed robbery, etc., and you're guilty. But he cancels it out of mercy. He cancels it. I don't know any earthly judge that would do that. But when you come to Christ, because he took the punishment for you, he cancels our debt. He nailed that debt to the cross. Hallelujah. Colossians 1.12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father who has made us worthy, who has made us worthy to participate in the inheritance of the saints in the light. So the idea that I am not worthy of God's blessings is completely unbiblical. You're his child. You are forgiven. If you come to him in repentance, you are forgiven. And you are, have been made worthy through Jesus. Not anything you've done or I've done, but we've been made worthy. He's made us worthy according to Colossians 1.12. We're his children now. And we're worthy to receive all of his blessings as a result. All right, so hopefully that smashes that mindset, and hopefully all in the room already kind of understand that concept, but I do still meet people that struggle with that, that level of feeling unworthy, okay? Let me just get that monkey off your back. The Bible says you're worthy, okay, because of Jesus. All right, wrong mindset number two, and this deals with false humility, false humility, um, and here's a, a kind of a fictitious quote, actually not so fictitious. Some people actually say this sort of thing. I don't need very much, just enough for me and my humble household. Well, again, this is toppling a sacred cow here, but I want you to understand. Now, brace yourself for what I'm about to say, and don't throw anything at me right now, because I am about to topple a sacred cow. This whole idea that I don't need very much, just enough for me and my humble household represents, brace yourself, self-centeredness. Now, Pastor Andy, how can that represent self-centeredness? I thought that was humble. Well, if you're only concerned about you and your household and about no one else, that's self-centered. You're not interested in helping other people. I mean, you're not interested in, in maybe possibly applying some biblical principles for you to grow financially so that you can be a blessing to other people? That's selfish. I'm sorry to be that blunt, but I'm just trying to help you this morning. And, I, and again, I know I'm toppling some sacred cows. As a matter of fact, just this past week, as, as timing would have it, I was having a lunch with a client of mine, a doctor, and we were just having casual conversation. And the conversation, he turned it abruptly to the church that he's attending up in Indianapolis. And he started to hammer his pastor for teaching the same kind of principles that I'm teaching you right now. Oh, be careful what you say in mixed company or if you don't you know exactly what the other person believes about certain things. Certain things you just ought to leave alone, right? He, he didn't know that what his pastor was teaching, I probably, I probably agree with everything his pastor teaches. Well, but he was sitting there hammering him for teaching these principles that I'm teaching you right now. So I just had to sit there and bite my tongue because, you know, as Christians, I, I, I feel like I want to focus on the things that we agree upon, not the things that we disagree upon in conversation. So I kind of had to sit there and, and bite my tongue. But I was very uncomfortable that he was blasting his pastor like that. And then he said this. Why would God give a blankety-blank about someone's money? And he said it just like that. Well, he didn't say blankety-blank. He said something else. Uh, but by the way, a uh, little side note for you. 
Uh, when you're trying to make a point, a spiritual point and a theological point, probably best to leave profanity out of it. It diminishes your credibility. And it doesn't make you sound more intelligent. It makes you sound less intelligent. Okay, just side note, okay. But that's what he said. He said, why would God give a blankety blank about someone's money? And then he used Mother Teresa as a way to try to justify that statement. Well, first of all, Mother Teresa lived like she lived by her own choice because, you know, most monks and nuns take vows of poverty, first of all. But I do agree that someone like Mother Teresa can be a tremendous blessing to someone without having a lot of money. That's true. But what this man obviously did not take into consideration is that someone had to fund Mother Teresa's work. Okay? Someone had to be behind the scenes paying the bills so that she could go out in the mission field and care for the poor and she not starve to death herself. Someone had to pay those bills. <laughs> so, so to say that God doesn't care about someone's money shows total ignorance of the Word of God. <laughs> and what's really perplexing about that is the people who say those sorts of things say it with such pride and such co condemnation toward people who don't believe exactly like they believe. I mean, this guy was just hammering his pastor. Very uncomfortable for me to sit, sit there and listen to that. So I quickly redirected the conversation. As I said last week, Jesus talked more about money than he did any other one topic except for salvation itself. Because, look, folks, money is a huge theme of the Bible because money is a test of the heart. Did you know that? So remember... God is very against greed and covetousness. That's true. But he's very for blessing people who are generous so that they can be even more generous. Praise God. Therefore, right thinking says, how can I be as much of a blessing to other people as possible? That's right thinking. See, now listen, I'm going to topple another sacred cow right now. It's going to get uncomfortable. There's a healthy tension between being content with what you have right now, which is a true biblical principle, and God enticing us with monetary blessings. Uh-oh. Both of those things are represented in the Bible. Being content with what you have right now and God enticing us with monetary blessings. I'm going to give you three examples out of the Bible. David and Goliath. You remember this? David went out to the battlefield, saw Goliath uh, with these, his threatening statements and defying the God of Israel. And he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would defy the armies of Israel? Remember that statement of indignation? But then he goes around the camp and he starts asking people, now what will the man get who slays Goliath? And he asked it like three different times because there was going to be some monetary blessing involved in the person that slayed Goliath. He just wanted to make sure that he got all his facts straight before he went out and slayed the giant. Now, of course, he was motivated by more than just the monetary because this was a spiritual battle. So we have to acknowledge that this was a spiritual battle. He had to you know, go up against this murderous, frightening giant that was threatening the armies of Israel, and he was indignant. 
So there was, a, there was a purity about his motivation there, but there was also thought, okay, well, hey, when, when I carry this out and I'm going to, because God's going to help me, I'm going to get tax exemption for me and my family, the king's daughter, and all the other things that went with that. Yes, David was partly motivated by that. And, and the Bible doesn't say a thing about his motives being wrong. Malachi chapter 3 where God addresses the people of Israel where their tithing is concerned. And God said, test me in this, says the Lord, to see if I will not throw open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you when you tithe. He said, you're robbing me when, you're, when you don't tithe. But when you tithe, come back to me with the tithe, honor me with the tithe, and when you do, I'm going to bless you in return. See, he was enticing. Look, he said, if you do this, this is, a, this is something that you see all through Scripture. God says, if you'll do this, I'll do that. Did you, did you not know that? Read the Bible. If you'll do this, I'll do that. All through the Bible. In the New Testament, we read it last week as our master text, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 where it talks about sowing into the ministry and being generous to the advancement of the ministry. The Apostle Paul was addressing the Corinthians Christians and uh, commending them for how generous they had already been, but then challenging them to be even more generous. And he said, when you do, he said, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow generously, you're going to reap or get back Generously, What was he saying? There's a blessing attached to when you give and are generous. The Bible doesn't say, well, God requires you to give, but you're on your own after that. No, God says, if you give, I'll give back to you. The Bible says, if you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord and he will repay the person who does that. I mean, all through it, scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture promises monetary blessings for those who are generous. Why? So you can just heap up stuff to yourself and just be selfish? No. So that you can be a channel, a conduit of God's blessing so he can trust you with even more generosity. That's the whole reason. Not that God doesn't enjoy you being blessed. He does. God, you're his child. God enjoys you being blessed. Psalm 35, 27. God takes delight in the prosperity of a servant, right? God takes delight in the prosperity of a servant. It doesn't say God takes delight in the poverty of a servant. That's nowhere in the Bible. God takes delight in the prosperity of a servant because he likes, likes it when you do well, but also so that you can be a blessing to other people. That's part of the reason. Again, God says, if you'll do this, I'll do that. So that's wrong mindset number two. Let's go to wrong mindset number three. And that is the me-centric universe. The me-centric universe. Everything revolves around my life, my ambitions, and my money. Me, 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 me. The me-centric universe. Everything revolves around me and us. See, listen, it, it, that picture, I think, depicts the human situation of those two kids uh, fighting over that hamburger there and pushing each other away and trying to get to the hamburger without any thought of the other person. Well, that's the human condition. We're born selfish. We're born selfish. Did you notice, parents, that you do not have to teach your kids how to be selfish? They already know how to do that. 
because it's part of the human nature. Did you realize, and maybe you've noticed this, that you don't have to teach your kids how to lie? Somehow, some way, they already intuitively know how to lie. What do you have to teach them? How to be truthful. Did you know that you don't have to teach your kids how to steal or cheat? They already know how to do that. It's part of the fallen human condition. But you do have to teach your kids how to be truthful, right? How to be honest, how to share, how to be generous. That's something we're taught. We're not, I mean, that's not instilled in us because of the human fallen nature and sin dwelling in the bosom of each person. But this is another reason why God commands generosity because generosity will kill that selfish mindset. Generosity smashes that spirit of mammon that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. In fact, here again, on this point too, God entices us with a promise. You want to see it? Here it is. Matthew 9.35, if anyone wants to be first, okay, fine. Here's how you do it. He must be the last of all and the servant of all. If you want to be important, if you want to be honored, learn to serve. If you want to be promoted, put yourself in the back of the line and serve others. And through the process of sowing and reaping, God will make sure that you're honored in time. That's how it works. Here's another related passage along those lines, uh, Luke 9, verses 23 and 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That's self-denial. For whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And that doesn't mean that you have to go out and you know, take your own life. That's, what, that's not what I was talking about. I was saying, saying, lay down your ambitions, lay down your desires, lay down your selfishness. And when you lay down your selfishness, you're going to find true life. See, if you cling on to things, if you hold it on to dear life, to stuff, and you're selfish, and you hoard, and you're not concerned about other people, guess what? Your life is going to seem vaguely empty. Vaguely empty. There's no one so empty who's full of self. And when you can empty yourself of self, then there's a paradox that goes on. There's a paradox that happens. All of a sudden, you find true life. That's the way God's kingdom works. It's exactly the opposite of how the world system works. You lay down your life, you're going to find true life. You cling to your life, you're going to lose it. This is a biblical principle throughout the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. So I want to teach you this morning and emphasize what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, and that's taking on God's agenda. This teaching this morning is all about God's kingdom. It's all about God's kingdom. So we need to, as givers, as people generous, see, this needs to be our motivation right here. Not to give so that you can get necessarily, although there are promises along those lines, and and. I don't apologize for that because it's in the Bible. But if your only motive is just to get, you're missing the point. Because God wants you to fall in love with his kingdom. God wants you to fall in love with his people. God wants you to fall in love with his church. And Donna and I did that at a very young age when we were first married. We just fell in love because he, you know, he brought us, me especially, brought us out of a very bad and dark place. And how many of you know that the Bible says... 
Um, the person who has been forgiven much loves much. And I came out of a very dark, perverse, very rebellious time, and God saved me out of that. And I was so thankful, so thankful that I just I began to fall in love with God's kingdom. I began to fall in love with his people, his church, and I began to invest my money in it. And not because I felt obligated and God was wrenching it out of my hands. I wanted to give. It's something I wanted to do. And God has blessed me in return. So I want to give you some perspective here about taking on God's agenda. So God is at work. He's always at work expanding his kingdom through people. Boy, you've got to get that, folks. God expands his kingdom through people. And kingdom expansion requires, among other things, money. You wouldn't be here this morning meeting together if it wasn't for some money coming in to pay the bills here, right? God's kingdom in part requires money. So God is at work expanding his kingdom through people and pursuing his kingdom means joining him in that work. Expanding the kingdom means joining God in his kingdom work. Luke 16, 9. <clears throat> pay very close attention to this. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's that mean? It means there's going to be people in heaven that greet you who are there because you gave, because you were generous to the kingdom, because you gave to Samaritan's Purse or uh, some other ministry that cares for the poor, some humanitarian ministry that gave to the poor and preached the gospel to them. And because you gave, there's going to be people in the kingdom that are there specifically because of your gift, and you're going to be greeted in heaven by some of those people. Let's read it again with that perspective. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Who are the friends that he's talking about? People that are in the kingdom and Maybe even some who are not in the kingdom that are being evangelized by maybe a ministry that you support. That's what he's talking about. You're gaining eternal friends for yourselves so that when your money is gone, in other words, you die because you can't take it with you, right? Then you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings and you'll get to meet some of those people. Hallelujah. Now, what does it mean to seek God's kingdom then? Well, I want to give you some uh, familiar passages along these lines. In Matthew 6, the words of Jesus, you know it well, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. What things is he talking about? Monetary things, you know, food, clothing, shelter, etc. All the things that pagans scratch and claw after. But God says, if you'll seek my kingdom and my righteousness, all these monetary things that you need is going to be given to you. God will take care of you. That's what he's saying. So, what is it that God wants then? If we're to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, what is it that God wants? Well, Matthew 6.10 says, thy kingdom come. This is part of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he wants his will done on earth. What is God's will? Well, God wants, uh, God wants his will done on earth, but he only uses willing people to accomplish it. God's will is that hungry mouths get fed and that the naked are clothed. That's God's will. That's his desire. And Jesus takes that very personally, by the way. I want to emphasize that point. 
The way you and I treat the poor, Jesus takes very personally because he said, if you do it not unto the least of these, you've done it not unto me. But if you do do it to the least of these, you do it unto me. You give to the poor, Jesus says, you're giving to me. I take that personally. God's will is also that the gospel be preached everywhere and that his church is well supplied and functioning at a high level. Now, this congregation built a a church building for a a small uh, congregation in Kenya that uh, couldn't meet during the monsoon season because they didn't have a building. Uh, They met under a banana tree. So when the rainy season came, uh, they couldn't meet during that time. But once they had a building, then they could meet year-round. So we got acquainted with this pastor in, in Kenya and uh, got to know them and some of their needs a little bit, and we sent a series of gifts until they had gathered the materials and erected their own building. And there's a church building standing in Kenya because uh, you and we built that building. So that's part of what God wants too, that his church is well supplied, and that people don't have to meet out under banana trees in the rainy season or not meet at all because of the rainy season. They have a place to meet. Hallelujah. That's, that's his will too, that God's church is well supplied. So to seek God's kingdom means to support the work of the gospel and provide for the poor and needy. That's part of what it means to seek God's kingdom. And I'm going to read you some passages, some related passages along these lines with some attached promises to these passages. Again, if you'll do this, I'll do that, God says, remember. So God wants to expand his kingdom through you. So ladies and gentlemen, we're supposed to be channels of God's blessings, not reservoirs. In other words, when something comes in, we're not supposed to just gather to ourselves and let nothing go back out the other end. When it comes in one direction, we need to send some of it back out the other direction. We need to be channels, rivers of God's blessing, not reservoirs. So let's read this together out of Psalm 112. This is a part of our master text. So <clears throat> there's a few verses out of our master text again. Listen very carefully because, again, this addresses generosity and the blessings associated with generosity from our master text. Verse 5, it is well with the man who is generous. It is well with the man who is generous and lends freely, whose affairs are guided by justice. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous man will be remembered forever. He does not fear bad news. It doesn't say that bad news will never come, but if it does, you don't fear it. Because why? Next part says so. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured. He does not fear until he looks in triumph on his foes. He has, here's another statement of generosity. He has scattered abroad his gifts To the poor. Amen. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. So if you do this, I'll do that, God says. Let me give you another one. Psalm 41, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the one who cares for the poor. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. It didn't say that trouble will never come, but when it does, God will deliver that person. 
Verse 2, the Lord will protect and preserve him. He will bless him in the land and refuse to surrender him to the will of his foes. Generosity does that for you. Verse 3, the Lord will sustain him on his sick, on his bed of illness. Another version says sick bed. That's why I was about, I about said that because I memorized it in, in a different version. Verse 3, the Lord will sustain him on his bed of illness and restore him from his bed of sickness. That's a promise where your health is concerned just by giving to the poor. Wow, if you do this, I'll do that, God says. Let me give you another one. Now, this isn't related specifically to the generosity part, but more the, the, the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is generous because that's a basic expectation of the Christ follower, remember. So Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack quite a bit of things. No, that's not what it says. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear the Lord or fear him lack nothing. The lions may go, grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Hallelujah. Is your faith getting bolstered this morning? Amen. Praise God. So I want to start to come down home stretch by addressing this right here, that, that God is a wise investor. And I want to ask this question, are you a good investment for God? See, here's a key thought for you. God will keep funneling money to that which keeps giving him a return. But he will hold back on areas where he takes a loss. I'm going to say that again. God will keep funneling money to that which keeps giving him a return. But he will hold back on areas where he takes a loss, just like any wise investor. Let me give you a little bit of evidence for that. Luke 13, verses 6 through 8 is our biblical evidence for that statement. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for, look, for the past three years I've come to search for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Therefore, cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone again this year until I dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, you can cut it down. The words of Jesus. God's a wise investor. He's not going to keep funneling money to things that don't give him a return. But the things that do give him a return, he'll give you even more. Now, some people tithe, as an example, but some of those individuals aren't seeing any significant advancement in their income. So let me just give you some brief instructions here on, work, on, on tithing, and I think this will help you in this regard. First of all, we have to worship God with a tithe. If your attitude is you're, that God is extracting it from you, or the pastor is extracting it from you or twisting your arm. Listen, if you feel at all pressured by me, I invite you not to give. Seriously. Because God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. So give it cheerfully. Worship God with it. 
and then do it by faith that when you do, God's going to keep his promise and bless you in return. So that's the next thing. The next thing after that is that the tithe is the 10% right off the top. You don't wait until you see if you have enough left over at the end of the week or the end of the month to decide whether or not you're going to tithe. You tithe by faith. You tithe right off the top and then just trust God that the other 90% is going to be blessed. Okay, you, you, you got to tithe by faith, ladies and gentlemen. And then the question has come up, well, do I tithe off of my gross or off of my net? And I think that's a really good question. And I, I would not fault anyone for tithing off of their net because that's your spendable income after the government extracts their slice. So that's your spendable income is your net. However, Donna and I have always tithed off of our gross since day one. And not one day have we ever been sorry that we do that. Not one day. Because God always provides for us, always, has always blessed us. So if you tithe like that, if you do it like that, then God's blessings tend to come in many forms. Sometimes it comes in the form of things not wearing out and breaking as often. You know, when Donna and I first started living like this, um, you know, when I married Donna, she had this, you know, bright red firebird that she drove. And so, uh, you know, I inherited it. So, you know, I was going to see all my clients driving around in this red firebird. And, and, uh, and we had a set of Cooper tires on that car. And no, no lie. I mean, most tires are what? They're registered for like 60 to 80,000 miles, depending on, you know, how they're made. Um, I got 120,000 miles out of one set of tires and didn't rotate them one time. Now, now you could say, well, that's a little commercial for Cooper, maybe. But that's a no, more of a commercial for God, okay? Because he just blessed stuff so it lasts longer, right? His blessings also come in the form of not having a bunch of medical bills all the time. That's another way God blesses you. But when things seem to be stagnant financially, even for the, the individual that tithes, then it begs the question, what are they doing with the other 90% that God says is yours to keep? Right? What are you doing with that other 90%? See, are, do they manage it wisely or do they blow it? Do they care for the poor or do they spend everything on themselves? Do they take good care of the things that God has already blessed them with? Or are they careless, lazy, and sloppy with it? See, God likes standards of excellence. He wants you to take care of your stuff. And he wants you to operate with integrity and not fudge the numbers and lie, right? And cheat and brush it under the rug because it's you know, just a little bit. No, no you, you, need to be, you need to operate your finances with integrity down to the smallest detail. Amen. You see, if God can't trust people with what they have right now, why would he trust them with more? That's not how a wise parent operates. If you at least tithe, God will take care of you. But he can't trust people with the true riches of his kingdom if they aren't about the father's business in their day-to-day -day lives and taking care of the stuff that he's already given them. Now, you may say, well, Andy, you just make it sound like I'm just an investment fund for God and nothing more. No, listen, God loves you and wants to take care of you. But if you want to grow financially... You have to get on God's program. And clearly, his program involves generosity as a lifestyle, as a lifestyle. You see, if you're irresponsible with your money and possessions, God has to hold back on you some so that you don't destroy yourself.
with whatever increase might come your way. I want to say that again. If you're irresponsible and selfish with the money and possessions that you have right now, God, as a good father, has to hold back on you some because he's protecting you from destroying yourself. How many of you know that wealth will destroy a fool? Wealth will destroy a fool. But wealth in the hands of a wise and generous person is a blessing. Praise God. Let me give you an example. How many of you have heard the name Tim Tebow? You know that name? Okay. Tim Tebow was a Heisman Trophy winner in college football as a quarterback for Florida. And then he went into the NFL for a short stint, and he was there for a few years. And, and he, he wasn't in the NFL for a long period of time, but he got a pretty big contract coming out of college. And, and, uh, and, and he was a missionary kid, by the way. He grew up in a missionary family. And so he was a very devout, and still is, very devout Christian and was in the NFL long enough to rack up probably quite a fortune. And now he's got the Tim Tebow Foundation. And one of the things they do is they provide surgical procedures, and they do many things, by the way. I mean, the, the, these list of services they provide is rather broad. But one of the things they do is they provide surgical procedures for underprivileged children. And I'm going to show you one of the underprivileged children that has been transformed by Tim Tebow's ministry. Okay? Now, brace yourself for this picture because it's a little bit grotesque because it's the picture of a young boy who was born with a genetic issue and his knees are literally on backwards. Okay? So here's what he looks like. So can you imagine living like that and the back pain and the et cetera that would cause? Well, through Tim Tebow's foundation, uh, children like him get operations that help them uh, with these genetic issues and other, you know, help them with life-threatening uh, life, uh, diseases. Well, I want to show you the same picture of the little boy after he has, is in a, a party celebrating his and other children's transformation through these operations. There is a picture of that little boy alongside Tim Tebow and his wife. Completely normal knees now. <laughs> Hallelujah. So when you give to things like that, it helps people. I mean, how can Tim Tebow, I mean, Tim Tebow came out of the NFL. I mean, you know, pretty blessed. So he started these foundations, but that, his, that fortune's not going to last forever. You start paying for a bunch of operations like that, you're going to drain that fortune pretty quickly. Okay? So he needs people like you and me. And so do all these other ministries. So um, this is my last slide, so I'm, I'm about done. So hang with me. So we have been given so that we might give. We have been given so that we might give. You know, we are looking there at, in the lower right, a picture that's uh, circulated by the ministry Feed My Starving Children. And what you're looking at is literally the houses, if you want to call it that, of some people. This is like a neighborhood, if you want to call it that. So it's just like sticks that people erect and throw some old blankets and tarps over it, and that's their shelter. That's what they live in. That's their houses. So, you know, when people in the world live like that, and you and I live like we do and have no concern for the poor and no concern for advancing the gospel, I'm concerned that we're going to have a lot to answer for in eternity. Because Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, that's you and me, much is is going to be required. 
and to whom much more is given, which is you and me, compared to the rest of the world, much more is going to be expected. That should give you pause, ladies and gentlemen. You ought to put that on your refrigerator. To whom much is given, much will be expected. So here's some suggestions where to give. Number one, your local church. That's the 10% right off the top, but that's not all. God also requires alms for the poor and special offerings. So we need to be giving to the poor and outside evangelistic and humanitarian works. Okay? So I'm going to reemphasize verse 5 out of our master text in Psalm 112. And again, this is the promise that we're going to end on right here. It is well with a man who is generous. If you do this, I'll do that, God says. Praise God. Stand with me if you will. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.